0: Cheers! Kampai! Salute! Gamber! Skal! Prost! Hello, and welcome to the Drunken Storytellers Podcast, where I tell folktales and folklore from around the globe. So sit back, grab yourself a drink, and enjoy the show. Hello my friends, and welcome to the Halloween special. Today, I'm live on Twitch. This will be put up as an episode this week or on Wednesday or Thursday whenever they come out, they forget but today we are going to be looking and telling the stories of two masters of the gothic and the macabre these will just be read and please do just enjoy a night of horror on this all-hallows eve on this night of when the realm between life and death is met and the spirits can cross over when the demons knock on your door and greet you and welcome you in tonight what knocks may not be friendly so beware so Let us begin with our first tale. An old tale. A noble tale. Tale of a creature we all love and fear. This is the tale of the vampire by John Polidori. So sit back, grab yourself a drink, and enjoy the tale. It happened that in the midst of the dissipations attendant upon London winter, there appeared at various parties of the leaders of the ton a nobleman more remarkable for his singularities than his rank. He gazed upon the mirth ground around him, as if he could not participate therein. Apparently the light laughter of the fair only attracted his attention, that he might by a look quell it, and throw fear into those breasts where thoughtlessness reigned. Those who felt a sensation of awe could only could not explain whence it arose. Some attributed it to the dead grey eye, which, fixing upon the object's face, did not seem to penetrate and at one glance to pierce through to the inward workings of the heart, but fell upon the cheek within a leaden ray that weighed upon the skin it could not pass. His peculiarities caused him to be invited to every house. All wished to see him, and those who had been accustomed to violent excitement, and now felt the weight of Ennui, were pleased at having something in their presence capable of engaging their attention. In spite of the deadly hue of his face, i lost my place already, um, which never gained a wanna tint, either from the blush of modesty or from the strong emotion of passion, though its form and outline were beautiful many of the female hunters after notoriety attempted to win his attentions and gain at least some marks of what they might term affection lady mercer who had been the mockery of every monster shrewd in drawing room since her marriage threw herself in his way and did all but put on the dress of a mant back to attract his notice though in vain when she stood before him though his eyes were apparently fixed upon hers still it seemed they were unperceived even unappalled impudence was baffled and she left the field but though the common adulteress could not influence even the guidance of his eyes it was not that the female sex was indifferent to him yet such was the apparent caution with which he spoke to the virtuous wife and innocent daughter that few knew he ever addressed himself to females. He had, however, the reputation of a winning tongue. Or that they were moved. Mr. Line, sorry. And whether it was that it even overcame the dread of his singular character. Or that they were moved by his apparent hatred of vice. He was as often among those females who form the boast of their sex from the domestic virtues, as among those who sully it by their vices. About the same time, there came to London a young gentleman of the name of Aubrey. He was an orphan left with an only sister in the possession of great wealth, by parents who had died while he was yet in childhood. Left also to himself by guardians, who thought it their duty merely to take care of his fortune, while they relinquished the more important charge of his mind to the care of mercenary subalterns. He cultivated more of his imagination than his judgment. He had hence that high romantic feeling of honour and candor, which daily ruins so many milliners' apprentices. He believed all to sympathise with virtue, and thought that vice was thrown in by providence merely for the picturesque effect of the scene. As we see in romances, he thought that the misery of a cottage merely consisted in the vesting of clothes, which were as warm, but which were better adapted to the painter's eye by their irregular folds and various coloured patches. He thought in fine, that the dreams of poets were the realities of life, he was handsome, frank, and rich. for those reasons, upon his entering into the gay circles, many mothers surrounded him, striving which should describe the least truth, their languishing or romping favorites, the daughters at the same time, by the brightening countenances when he approached, and by their sparkling eyes, when he opened his lips soon led him into false notions of his talents and his merit. Attached as he was to the romance of his solitary hours, he was startled at finding that, except in the tallow and wax candles that flickered, not from the presence of a ghost, but from want of snuffing, there was no foundation in real life for any of the congres of pleasing pictures and descriptions, from which he had formed his study. Finding, however, some compensation in his gratified vanity, he was about to relinquish his dreams when the extraordinary being we have above described crossed him in his career. He watched him, and the very impossibility of forming an idea of the character of a man entirely absorbed in himself, who gave few other signs of his observations of external objects, then the tactic assent to their existence, implied by the avoidance of their contact, allowing his imagination to picture everything that flattered its propensity to extravagant ideas. He soon formed this object into a hero of romance, and determined to observe the offspring of his fancy, rather than the person before him. He became acquainted with him, paid him his attentions, and so far advanced upon his notice that his presence was always recognised. He gradually learned that Lord Ruthven's affairs were embarrassed, and soon found from the notes of preparation in the street that he was about to travel, desirous of gaining some information respecting this singular character who, till now, had only whetted his curiosity. He hinted to his guardians that it was time for him to perform the tour, which for many generations, had been thought necessary to enable the young to take some rapid steps in the career of vice towards putting themselves upon an equally upon an equi- upon an equality with the aged and not knowing them to appear as if fallen from the skies whenever scandalous intrigues are mentioned as the subjects of pleasantry or of praise, according to the degree of skill shown in carrying them on, they consented and Aubrey immediately, mentioning his intentions to Lord Ruthven, was surprised to receive from him a proposal to join him. Flattered such a mark of esteem from him, who apparently had nothing in common with the other man, he gladly accepted, and in a few days they had passed the circling waters. Hitherto, Aubrey had had no opportunity of studying Lord Ruthven's character, and now he found that, though many more of his actions were expressed to his view, the results offered different conclusions from the apparent motives of his conduct. His companion was profuse in his liberty, the idol, the vagabond and the beggar, received from his hand more than enough to relieve their immediate wants. But Aubrey could not avoid remarking that it was not upon the virtuous, reduced to indulgence by the misfortunes attendant upon, even upon virtue, that he bestows his arms. These were sent from the door with hardly suppressed sneers. But when the pro- profiligate came to, and, to ask something, not to relieve his wants, but to allow him to wallow in his lust, to sink him still deeper in his in- iniquity, he was sent away with rich charity. This was, however, attributed to him to the great importunity of the vicious, which generally prevails over the retiring bashfulness of the virtuous indignant. There was one circumstance about the charity of his lordship which was still more impressed upon his mind. All those upon whom it was bestowed inevitably found that there was a curse upon it, for they were all either led to the scaffold, or sunk to the lowest and the most abject misery. At Brussels and other towns through which they passed, Aubrey was surprised at the apparent eagerness with which his companions sought to the centres of fashionable vice. There he entered into all the spirit of the faro table. He bettered and always gambled with success. Except where the known sharper was his antagonist, and then he lost even more than he gained. But it was always with the same unchanging face, with which he generally watched the society around. It was not, however, so when he encountered the rash youthful novice, or the luckless father of a numerous family, then his very wish seemed fortune's law. This apparent Abstractedness of mind was laid aside, and his eyes sparkled with more fire than that of a cat whilst dallying with the half-dead mouse. In every town he left the formerly affluent youth, torn from the circle he had adorned, cursing in the solitude of a dungeon. The fate that had drawn him within the reach of his fiend, whilst many a father sat frantic amidst the speaking looks of mute hungry children. "'without a single farthing of his late immense wealth. "'Wherewith to buy even su- sufficient to satisfy their present craving?' "'Yet he took no money from the gambling table, "'but immediately lost to the ruiner of many, "'the last gilder he had just snatched from the convulsive grasp of the innocent. "'This might be the result of a certain degree of knowledge, "'which was not, however, capable of combating the cunning of the more experienced.' Aubrey often wished to represent this to his friend, and beg him to resign that charity and the pleasure which proven the ruin of all, did not tend to his own profit, but delayed it. For each day he hoped his friend would give him some opportunity of speaking frankly and openly to him. However, this never occurred. Lord Ruthburn, in his carriage, and amidst the various wild and rich scenes of nature, was always the same. His eyes spoke less than his lip, and though Aubrey was near the object of his curiosity, he obtained no greater gratification from it than the constant excitement of vainly wishing to break that mystery, which to his exalted imagination began to assume the appearance of something supernatural. They soon arrived at Rome, and Aubrey for a time lost sight of his companion. He left him in the daily attendance upon the morning circle of an Italian countess, whilst he went in search of the memorials of an almost deserted city. Whilst he was thus engaged, letters arrived from England, which he opened with eager impatience. The first was from his sister, breathing nothing but affection, the others were from his guardians. The latter astonished him. If it had before entertained, entered into his imagination that there was an evil power resident in his companion, these seemed to give him almost sufficient reason for the belief. His guardians insisted upon his immediately leaving his friend and urged that his character was dreadfully vicious, for that the possession of the irresistible powers of seduction rendered his licentious habits more dangerous to society. It had been discovered that his contempt for the adulteress had not originated in hatred of her character, but that he had required, to to enhance his gratification, that his victim, the partner of his guilt, should be hurled from the pinnacle of unsullied virtue down to the lowest abyss of infamy and degradation. In fine, that all those females whom he had sought, apparently on account of their virtue, had since his departure, thrown even the mask aside, and had not scrupled to expose the whole deformity of their vices to the public gaze. Aubrey determined upon leaving one, whose character had not shown a single bright point on which to rest the eye. He resolved to invent some plausible pretext for abandoning him altogether, purposing, in the meanwhile, to watch him more closely, and to let no slight circumstances pass the unnoticed. He entered into the same circle and soon perceived that his lordship was endeavouring to work upon the inexperience of the daughter of the lady whose house he chiefly frequented in italy it is seldom that an unmarried female is met within society he was therefore obliged to carry on his plans in secret but Aubrey's eyes followed him in all his windings and soon discovered that an assassination had been appointed which would most likely end in the ruin of an innocent, though thoughtless girl. Losing no time, he entered the apartment of Lord Ruthven and abruptly asked him his intentions with respect to the lady, informing him at the same time that he was aware of his being about to meet her that very night. Lord Ruthven answered that his intentions were such as he supposed or would have upon such an occasion, and upon being pressed whether he intended to marry her, merely laughed. Albury retired and immediately writing a note to say that from that moment he must decline accompanying his lordship in the remainder of their proposed tour. He ordered his servant to seek other apartments, and calling upon the mother of the lady, informed her of all he knew, not only with regard to the daughter, but also concerning the character of his lordship. The assassination was prevented. Lord Ruthven, Next, Lord Ruthven next day merely sent his servant to notify, notify his complete assent to the separation, but did not hint any suspicion of his plans having been foiled by Aubrey's in, interposition. Having left Rome, Aubrey directed his steps towards Greece, and crossing the peninsula soon found himself at Athens. He then fixed residence in the house of a Greek, and soon occupied himself in tracing the faded records of ancient Greece upon m- monuments that apparently, ish- ashamed of chronicling the deeds of free men only before slaves, had hidden themselves beneath the sheltering soil or many-coloured lichen, upon the same roof as himself existed a being so beautiful and delicate that she might have found formed the model for a painter wishing to portray on canvas the promised hope of a faithful in Mahomet's paradise, save that her eyes spoke too much mind for anyone to think she could belong to those who had no souls. As she danced upon the plain, or tripped along the mountainside, one would have thought the gazelle a poor type of her beauties, for who would have, for who would have exchanged her eyes, apparently the eye of animated nature? for that sleepy, luxurious look of the animal suited but to the taste of an epicure. The light step of a lanth often accompanied Aubrey in his search for after antiquities, and often would the unconscious girl engaged in the pursuit of cashmere butterfly, show the whole beauty of her form, boating as it were upon the wind to the eager gaze of him, who forgot the letters he had just deciphered upon an almost effaced tablet in contemption of her sylph-like figure often would her tresses fall uh, falling as she flitted around exhibited in the sun's ray such delicacy brilliant and swiftly fading hues as might well excuse the forgetfulness of the antiqu- antiquary who let escape from his mind the very object he had before thought vital of importance to the proper interpretation of a passage in Paus- pausanias But why attempt to describe charms which all feel? It was innocent, youth and beauty, unaffected by crowded drawing rooms and stifling balls. Whilst he drew those remains of which he wished to preserve a memorial for his future hours, she would stand by and watch the magic effects of his pencil in tracing the scenes of her native place. She would then describe to him the circling dance upon the open plain, would paint to him in all the glowing colours of youthful memory, the marriage pomp she remembered viewing in her infancy, and then, turning to the subjects that had evidently made a greater impression upon her mind, would tell him all the supernatural tales of her nurse. Her earnestness and apparent belief of what she narrated excited the interest even of Aubrey, Then often as she told him the tale of the living vampire, who had passed years amidst his friends and dearest ties, forced every year by feeding upon the life of a lovely female to prolong his existence. For the ensuing months his blood would run cold whilst he attempted to laugh her out of such idle and horrible fantasies, but Lanth cited to him the names of old men, who had at last detected one living among themselves after several of their near relatives and children had been found marked with the stamp of the fiend's appetite. And when she found him so incredulous, she begged of him to believe her, for it had been remarked that those who had dared to question their existence always had some proof given, which obliged them with grief and heartbreaking to confess it was true. She detailed to him the traditional appearance of those monsters, and his horror was increased by hearing a pretty accurate description of Lord Luthven, he, however, still persisted in persuading her that there could be no truth in her fears, though at the same time he wondered at many coincidences which, he had, to, which had all tended to the excite a belief in the supernatural, supernatural power of Lord Ruthven. Aubrey began to attach himself more and more to Lanth. Her innocence, so contrasted with all the affected virtues of the woman among whom he had sought for his vision of romance, won his heart. While he ridiculed the idea of young men of English habits marrying an uneducated Greek girl, still he found himself more and more attached to the almost fairy form before him. He would tear himself at times from her, and forming a plan for some antiquarian research, would depart, determined not to return until his object was attained. But he always found it impossible to fix his attention upon the ruins around him, whilst in his mind he retained an image that seemed, alone, the rightful possessor of his thoughts. Yanth was unconscious of his love, and was ever the same prank infantile being he had first known. She would always seem to part from him with reluctance, but it was because she had no longer anyone with whom she would visit her favourite haunts, whilst her guardian was occupied in sketching or uncovering some fragrant fragment which had yet escaped the destructive hand of time. She had appealed to her parents on the subject of vampires, and they both, with several present, affirmed their existence, pale with horror at the very name. Soon after, Aubrey determined to proceed upon one of his excursions, which was to detain him for a few hours when they heard the name of the place. They all at once begged of him not to return at night, as he must necess- necessarily pass through a wood where no Greek would ever remain, after the day had closed, upon any consideration. They described it as a resort of the vampires, in their nocturnal orgies, and denounced the most heavy evils impending upon him who dared to cross their path. Oh, we made light of their representations, and tried to laugh them out of the idea. But when he saw them shudder at his daring thus to mock a superior, infernal power, the very name of which apparently made their blood freeze, he was silent. Next morning, Orby set off upon his excursions unattended. He was prized, surprised to observe the melancholy face of his host, and was concerned to find that his words, mocking the belief of those horrible fiends, had inspired them with such terror. When he was about to depart, Yanth came to his side of his horse, and earnestly begged of him to return, ere night allowed the power of these beings to be put in action. He promised. He was, however, so occupied in his research, that he did not perceive that daylight would soon end, and that the horizon there was of those specks which, in the warmer climate, so rapidly gather, into tremendous mass and pour all their rage upon the devoted country he at last however mounted his horse determined to make up by speed for his delay but it was too late twilight in these southern climbers is almost unknown immediately the sun sets and night begins and ere he had advanced far the power of the storm was above its echoing thunders as scarcely an interval of rest its thick heavy rain it forced way through the canopy foliage whilst the blue forked lightning seemed to fall and radiate at his very feet. Suddenly his horse took fright and he was carried with dreadful rapidity through the entangled forest. The animal at last through fatigue stopped and he found by the glare of the lightning that he was in the neighbourhood of a hovel that hardly lifted itself up from the masses of the dead leaves and brushwood which surrounded it. Dismounting, he approached, hoping to find someone to guide him to the town, or at least trusting to obtain shelter from the pelting of the storm. As he approached, the thunders for a moment silent allowed him to hear the dreadful shrieks of a woman mingling with the stifled, exultant mockery of a laugh, continued in one almost unbroken sound. He was startled, but roused by the thunder which again rolled over his head, he with a sudden effort forced open the door of the hut and he found himself in utter darkness the sound however guided him he was apparently unperceived for though he called still the sounds continued and no notice was taken of him he found himself in contact with someone whom he immediately seized when a voice cried again baffled to which a loud laugh succeeded And then he himself grappled by one whose strength seemed superhuman. Determined to sell his life as dearly as he could, he struggled, but it was in vain. He was lifted from his feet and hurled with enormous force against the ground. His enemy threw himself upon him, and kneeling upon his breast, had placed his hands upon his throat when the glare of many torches penetrating through the hole that gave light in the day disturbed him. He instantly rose and, leaving his prey, rushed through the door. And in a moment, the crashing of branches as he broke through the wood was no longer heard. The storm was now still, and Aubrey, incapable of moving, was heard by those without. They entered, and the light of their torches fell upon the mud walls and the thatch loaded on every individual straw with heavy flakes of soot. As the desire of Aubrey, they searched. At the desire of Aubrey they searched for her who had attracted him by her cries. He was again left in darkness. But what was his horror, when the light of the torches once more burst upon him, to perceive the airy form of his fair conductress brought in a lifeless corpse? He shut his eyes, hoping that it was but a vision arising from his disturbed imagination. But he again saw the same form when he unclosed them, stretched by his side. There was no colour upon her cheek, not even upon her lip, yet there was a stillness about her face that seemed almost as attaching as the life that once dwelt there. Upon her neck and breast was blood, and upon her throat were the marks of teeth having opened the vein. To this the men pointed, crying, simultaneously struck with horror, A vampire! A vampire! A litter was quickly formed, and Aubrey was laid by the side of her, who had lately been to him the object of so many bright and fairy visions, now fallen, with the flower of life that had died within her. He knew not what his thoughts were. His mind was benumbed and seemed to shun reflection and take refuge in vacancy. He had almost unconsciously in his hand a naked dagger of a particular construction, which he had found in the hut. They were soon met by different parties who had been engaged in the search of her whom a mother had missed. Their lamentable cries as they approached the city forewarned the parents of some dreadful catastrophe. To describe the grief would be impossible, but when they ascertained the cause of the child's death, they looked at aubrey and pointed to the corpse they were inconsolable and both died heartbroken aubrey being put to bed was seized with a most violent fever and was often delirious in these intervals he would call upon lord ruthven and upon the by some uncountable combination he seemed to beg for his former companion to spare the being he loved at times he would imprecate maledictions upon his head and curse him as her destroyer old ruthven chanced at this time to arrive in athens and from whatever motive upon hearing the state of aubrey immediately placed himself in the same house and became his constant attendant when the latter recovered from his delirium he was horrified and startled at the sight of him whose image he had now combined with that of a vampire Lord Ruthven, by his kind words implying almost repentance for the fault that had caused their separation, and still more by the attention, anxiety, and care which he had showed, soon reconciled him to his presence. His lordship seemed quite changed. He no longer appeared that apathetic being who had so astonished Albury. But as soon as his convalescence began to be rapid, he again gradually retired into the same state of mind, and Aubrey perceived no difference from the former man, except that at times he was surprised to meet his gaze upon, intently upon him, with a smile of malicious exultation playing upon his lips. He knew not why, but the smile haunted him. During the last stage of the invalid's recovery, Lord Ruthven was apparently engaged in watching the tideless waves raised by the cooling breeze, or in marking the progress of the orbs, circling, like our world, the moveless sun. Indeed, he appeared to wish to avoid the eyes of all. Aubrey's mind, by this shock, was much weakened, and the elasticity of spirit which had once so distinguished him, now seemed to have fled for ever. He was now as much a lover of solitude and silence as Lord Ruthven. But much as he wished for solitude, his mind could not find it in the neighbourhood of Athens. If he sought it amidst the ruins he had formerly frequented, Ianth's form stood by his side. If he sought it in the woods, Her light step would appear wandering amidst the Underwood, in the quest of modest violets, then suddenly turning round, would show, in his wild imagination, her pale face and wounded throat, with a weak smile upon her lips. He determined to fly scenes every feature of which created such bitter associations in his mind. He proposed to Lord Ruthven, to whom he held himself bound by the tender care he had taken of him during his illness, that they should visit those parts of Greece, neither had yet seen. They travelled in every direction, and saw every spot to which a recollection could be attached. But though they thus hastened from place to place, yet they seemed not to heed what they gazed upon. They heard much of robbers, but they gradually began to slight these reports, which they imagined were only the invention of individuals whose interest it was to exile the generosity of those whom they defended from pretended dangers. In consequence of thus neglecting the advice of the inhabitants, on one occasion they travelled with a few guards, more to serve as guides than as defence. Upon entering, however, a narrow defile, at the bottom of which was the bed of a torrent, with large masses of rock brought down from the neighbouring precipices, they had reason to repent their negligence scarcely were the whole of the party engaged in the narrow pass, when they were startled by the whistles of bullets close to their head, and by the echoed report of several guns. In an instant their guards had left them, and placing themselves behind rocks had begun to fire in the direction whence the report came. Lord Ruthven and Albury, imitating their example, retired for a moment behind the sheltering turn of the defile, but ashamed of being thus detained by a foe, who, with insulting shouts, bade them advance, and being exposed to unresisting slaughter, if any of the robbers should climb above and take them from in the rear, they determined at once to rush forward in search of the enemy. Hardly had they lost the shelter of the rock when Lord Ruthven received a shot in the shoulder, which brought him to the ground. Orby hastened his assistance, and, no longer heeding the contest of his own peril, was soon surprised by seeing the robbers' faces around him, his guards, having, upon Lord Ruthven's being wounded, immediately thrown up their arms and surrendered. By promises of great reward, Orby soon introduced them to convey his wounded friend to a neighbouring cabin, and having agreed upon a ransom, he was no more disturbed by their presence. They being content merely to guard the entrance till their comrades should return with their promised sum, for which he had an order, Lord Ruthven's strength rapidly decreased. In two days, mortification ensued, and death seemed advancing with hasty steps. His conduct and appearance had not changed. He seemed as unconscious of pain as he had been of the objects about him. But towards the close of the last evening, his mind became apparently uneasy, and his eye often fixed upon Aubrey, who was induced to offer his assistance with more than usual earnestness. Assist me. You may save me. You may do more than that. I mean not life. I heed the death of my existence, as little as that of the passing day. But you may save my honour, your friend's honour. How? Tell me how. I would do anything, replied Aubrey. I need but little. My life ebbs apace. I cannot explain the whole... But if you would conceal all you know of me, my honour were free from the stain in the world's mouth. And if my death were unknown for some time in England, I, I, but life, it shall be known. Swear, cried the dying man raising himself with exultant violence swear by your soul reverse by all your natural fears swear for a year and a day that you will not impart your knowledge of my crimes or death to any living being in any way whatever may happen or whatever you may see his eyes seemed bursting from their sockets i I swear said aubrey he he sunk laughing upon his pillows and breathed no more Aubrey retired to rest, but did not sleep. The many circumstances attending his acquaintance with the man rose upon his head, and he knew not why, when he remembered his oath and a cold shiver came over him, as if from the presentment of something horrible awaiting him. Rising early in the morning, he was about to enter the hovel in which he had left the corpse, when a robber met him, and informed him that it was no longer there having been conveyed by himself and comrades upon his retiring to the pinnacle of a neighbourhood mount, according to a promise they had given his lordship that it should be exposed to the first cold ray of the moon that rose after his death. Aubrey, astonished, and taking several of the men determined to go and bury it upon the spot where it lay, but when he had mounted to the summit he found no trace of either the corpse or the clothes, Though the robbers swore, they pointed out the identical rock on which they had laid the body. For a time, his mind was bewildered in conjectures, but at last returned, convinced that they had buried the corpse for the sake of the clothes. Weary of country in which he had met with such terrible misfortunes, and in which he all apparently conspired to heighten the superstitious melancholy that had seized upon his mind, He resolved to leave it, and soon arrived in Simnia. Well, waiting for a vessel to convey him to Otranto or to Naples, he occupied himself in arranging those effects he had with him belonging to Lord Ruthven. Amongst other things, there was a case containing several weapons of offence, more or less adapted to ensure the death of the victim. There were several daggers and Atagans, whilst... Turning them over and examining their curious forms, what was his surprise at finding a sheath, apparently ornamented in the same style as the dagger discovered in the fatal hut? He shuddered. Hastening to gain further proof, he found the weapon, and his horror may be imagined when he discovered that it fitted. Though peculiarly shaped, the sheath he held in his hand, his eyes seemed to need no further certainty. They seemed gazing to be bound to the dagger, yet still he wished to disbelieve. But the particular form, for the same varying tints upon the haft and sheath, were alike in splendor on both, and left no room for doubt. There were also drops of blood on each. He left Smyrna, and on his way to, on his way home at Rome. His first inquiries were concerning the lady he had attempted to snatch from Lord Ruthven's seductive arts. Her parents were in distress, their fortune ruined, and she had not been heard of since the departure of the lordship. Aubrey's mind became almost broken under so many repeated horrors. He was afraid that his lady had fallen, a victim to the destroyer of Ianth. He became morose and silent his only occupation consisted in urging the speed of the position at postilions as if he were going to save the life of someone he held dear. He arrived at Calais, and Breeze, which seemed obedient to his will, soon wafted him into the English shores, and he hastened to the mansion of his fathers, and there, for a moment, appeared to lose in the embraces of the, and the caresses of his sister all memory of the past. If she, before by her infantine caresses had gained his affection. Now that the woman began to appear, she was still more attaching as a companion. Miss Aubrey had not the winning grace which gains the gaze and applause of the drawing-room assemblies. There was none of that light brilliancy which only exists in the heated atmosphere of a crowded apartment. Her blue eye was never lit up by the levity of the mind-breath. There was a melancholy charm about it, which did not seem to arise from misfortune, but from some feeling within that appeared to indicate a soul consciousness of a brighter realm. Her step was not that light-footing, which strays wherever a butterfly or a colour may attract. It was sedate and pensive, when alone her face was never brightened by the smile of joy but when her brother breathed to her his affection, and would in her presence forget those griefs she had destroyed his rest, who would have exchanged her smile for that of the voluptuary? It seemed as if those eyes, that face, were then playing in the light of their own native sphere. She was yet only eighteen, and had not been presented to the world, it having been thought by her guardians more fit, that her presentation should be delayed until her brother's return from the continent which he might be her protector it was now therefore resolved that the next drawing room which was fast approaching should be the epoch of her entry into the busy scene aubrey would rather have remained in the mansion of his fathers and feed upon the melancholy which overpowered him he could not feel interest about the frivolities of fashionable strangers as when his mind had been so torn by the events he had witnessed but he determined to sacrifice his own comfort to the protection of his sister. They soon arrived in town and prepared for the next day, which had been pa- announced as a drawing-room. The crowd was excessive. A drawing-room had not been held for a long time, and all who were anxious to bask in the smile of royalty hastened thither. Aubrey was here with his sister, while he was standing in a corner by himself, heedless of all around him. Engaged in the remembrance that the first time he had seen Lord Ruthven was in that very place. He felt himself suddenly seized by the arm, a voice he recognised all too well sounded in his ear. "'Remember your oath' He had hardly courage to turn, fearful of seeing a spectre that would blast him when he perceived, at a little distance, the same figure which had attracted his notice, on the spot upon his first entry into society. He gazed till his limbs almost refusing to bear their weight. He was obliged to take the arm of a friend, and forcing a passage through the crowd, he threw himself into his carriage and was driven home. He paced the room with hurried steps and fixed his hands upon his head, as if he were afraid of his thoughts were bursting from his brain. Lord Ruthven, again before him. Circumstances started up in a dreadful array. The dagger, his oath. He roused himself he could not believe it possible. The dead rise again. He thought his imagination had conjured up the image his mind was resting upon. He was It was impossible that it could be real, he determined. Therefore, to go again into society, for though he attempted to ask concerning Lord Ruthven, the name hung upon his lips and he could not succeed in gaining information. He went for a few nights after with his sister to the assembly of a near relation, Leaving her under the protection of a matron, he retired into a recess, and there gave himself up to his own devouring thoughts. Perceiving at last that many were leaving, he roused himself and entered another room. Found his sister surrounded by several, apparently in earnest conversation. He attempted to pass and get near her, when one, whom he requested to move, turned around and revealed to him those features he most abhorred. He sprang forward, seized his sister's arm, and with hurried step forced her towards the street. The door he found himself impeded by the crowd of servants who were waiting for their lords, and while he was engaged in passing them, he again heard that voice whispered close to him, Remember your oath. He did not ne'er turn, but hurrying, his sister soon reached home. Aubrey became almost distracted. If before his mind had been absorbed by one subject, how much more completely was it engrossed now that the certainty of the monsters living again pressed upon his thoughts? His sister's attentions were now unheeded, and it was in vain that she entreated him to explain to her what had caused his abrupt conduct. He only uttered a few words, and those terrified her. The more he thought, the more he bewildered. His oath startled him. Was he then to allow this monster to roam, bearing ruin upon his breath amidst all he held dear and not avert its progress? His very sister might have been touched by him, but even if he were to break his oath and disclose his suspicions, who would believe him? He thought of employing his own hand to free the world of such a wretch. But death, he remembered, had already been mocked, and for days he remained in state, shut up in his room, he saw no one, and ate only when his sister came, who, with eyes streaming with tears, besought him, for her sake, to support nature. At least, at last, no longer capable of bearing stillness and solitude, he left his house, roamed from street to street, anxious to fly that image which haunted him, His dress became neglected, and he wandered as often exposed to the noonday sun as to the midnight damps. He was no longer to be recognized. At first, he returned with evening to the house, but at last he laid him down to rest wherever fatigue overtook him. His sister, anxious for his safety, implored people to follow him, but they were soon distanced by him, who fled from a pursuer swifter than any from thought. His conduct, however suddenly changed struck with the idea that he left by his absence the whole of his friends with a fiend amongst them of whose presence they were unconscious he determined to enter again into society and watch him closely anxious to forewarn in spite of his oath all whom lord ruthven approached with intimacy but when he entered into a room his haggard and suspicious looks were so striking his inward shuddering so visible that his sister was at last obliged to beg of him to abstain from seeking for her sake a society which affected him so strongly. When, however, remonstrance proved unavailing, the Guardian's thought proper to interpose, and fearing that his mind was becoming alienated, they thought it high time to resume again that trust which had been before imposed upon them by Aubrey's parents. Desirous of saving him from the injuries and sufferings he had daily encountered in his wanderings, and of preventing him from exposing to the general eye these marks of what they considered folly, they engaged a physician to reside in the house and take constant care of him. He hardly appeared to take notice of it, so completely was his mind absorbed by one terrible subject his incoherence became at last so great that he was confined to his chamber there he would often lie for days incapable of being roused he had become emaciated his eyes had attained a glassy luster and the only sign of affection and recollection remaining displayed itself upon the entry of his sister then he would sometimes start and seizing her hands with looks that severely afflicted her He would desire her not to touch him. Oh, do not touch him. If your love for me is out, do not go near him. When, however, she inquired to whom he referred, his only answer was, True, true. And again he sank into a state, whence not even she could rouse him. These lasted many months. Gradually, however, as the year was passing, his incoherences became less frequent and his mind threw off a portion of its gloom, whilst his guardians observed that several times in the day he would count upon his fingers a definite number, and then smile. The time had nearly elapsed when, upon the last day of the year, one of his guardians entering his room began to converse with the physician upon the melancholy circumstance of Aubrey's being in so awful a situation when his sister was going next day to be married instantly orby's attention was attracted he asked anxiously to whom glad of his mark of returning intellect of which they had feared he had been deprived they mentioned the name of the earl of marsden thinking this was a young earl whom he had met with in society orby seemed pleased and astonished them still more by expressing his intention to be present at the nuptials and desiring to see his sister. He was apparently capable he was apparently again capable of being affected by the influences of her lovely smile, for he pressed her to his breast and kissed her cheek wet with tears, flowing at the thought of her brother's being once more alive to the feelings of her affection. He began to speak with all his wonted warmth and to congratulate her upon her marriage with a person so distinguished for rank and every accomplishment when he suddenly perceived a locket upon her breast opening it, what was his surprise at beholding the features of the monster who had so long influenced his life he seized the portrait in a paroxysm of rage and trampled it underfoot upon her asking him why he thus destroyed the resemblance of her future husband he looked as if he did not understand her Then, seizing her hands and gazing on her with a frantic expression of countenance, he bade her swear that she would never wed this monster, for he... But he could not advance it. It seemed as if that voice again bade him remember his oath. He turned suddenly round, thinking Lord Ruthven was near him, but saw no one. In the meantime, the guardians and physicians who had heard the whole, and thought that this was but a return of his disorder, entered, and, forcing him from Miss Aubrey, desired her to leave him. He fell upon his knees to them, he implored, he begged of them to delay but for one day. They, attributing this to the insanity they imagined, had taken possession of his mind, endeavoured to pacify him, and retired. Lord Ruthven had called the morning after the drawing-room, and had been refused with everyone else. When he heard of Aubrey's ill-health, he readily understood himself to be the cause of it. But when he learned that he was deemed insane, his exultation and pleasure could hardly be concealed from those among whom he had gained this information. He hastened to the house of his former companion, and by constant attendance, and the pretense of great affection for the brother and interest in his fate, he gradually won the ear of Miss Aubrey, who could resist his power his tongue had dangers and toils to recount, could speak of himself as of an individual having no sympathy with any being on this crowded earth, save with her to whom he addressed himself, could tell how, since he knew her, his existence had begun to seem worthy of preservation. If it were merely that he might listen to her soothing accents, in fine, he knew so well how to use the serpent's art or such was the will of fate that he gained her affections the title of the elder branch falling at the length of to him he obtained an important embassy which served him as excuse for hastening the marriage in spite of her brother's deranged state which was to take place the very day before his departure to the continent aubrey was left by the physician and his guardians attempted to bribe the servants but in vain he asked for pen and paper it was given him he wrote a letter to his sister conjuring her and she valued her own happiness her own honour and the honour of those now in the grave who once held her in their arms as their hope and the hope of all their house to delay but for a few hours that marriage on which he denounced the most heavy curses the servants promised they would deliver it But giving it to the physician, he thought it better not to harass any more the mind of Miss Aubrey by what he considered the ravings of a maniac. Night passed on without rest to the busy inmates of the house, and Aubrey heard with a horror that may more easily be conceived than described, the notes of busy preparation. Morning came, and the sound of the carriages broke upon his ear. Aubrey grew almost frantic. The curiosity of the servants at last overcame their vigilance. They gradually stole away, leaving him in the custody of a helpless old woman. He seized the opportunity with one bound, was out of the room, and in a moment found himself in the apartment where all were nearly assembled. Lord Ruthven was the first to perceive him. He immediately approached, and taking his arm by force hurried him from the room, speechless with rage when, on the staircase, Lord Ruthven whispered in his ear, Remember your oath, and know, if not my bride today, your sister is dishonoured. Women are frail. And so saying, he pushed him towards the attendants, who, roused by the old woman, had come in search of him. Aubrey could no longer support himself. His rage, not finding vent, had broken a blood vessel, and he was conveyed to bed this was not mentioned to his sister who was not present when he entered as the physician was afraid of agitating her the marriage was solemnized and the bride and bridegroom left london aubrey's weakness increased the effusion of blood produced symptoms of near death near approach of death he desired his sister's guardians might be called and when the midnight hour had struck he related composedly what the reader has pursued he died immediately after. The guardians hastened to protect Miss Aubrey, but when they arrived, it was too late. Lord Ruthven had disappeared, and Aubrey's sister had glutted the thirst of a vampire. And that is the tale of the vampire. I hope you enjoyed that first tale that we shall tell tonight. We shall first take a short break, to relieve those comforts, and relax the mind after the fear of the tale. We shall go fill our glasses up, ready for another tale of darkness and horror. So please, take this time to relax, enjoy the light, and forget about the darkness out there, and that scratching at the window. Welcome back, my friends. We have had one story this evening, a story of life and death, evocation, if you wouldn't say. Next, we shall take a story a little bit darker, one of less life and death, and one more of something related to the season that we are in now. A season controlled by witches and black magic, one that tests the faith of people. So now we shall go and tell the tale from the master of the ghost stories, from the master of the hauntings and the darkness within the soul. We shall go to a Torah story of black magic, of evilness and deception. We shall tell the story now, told many years ago by the master M. R. James. And we shall be reading the story of casting the runes. So grab yourself a drink, sit by the warming fire, Accompanied by your friends Krampus and Humphrey Bogart, as they sit there and listen and enjoy the tales with you and me, your drunken storyteller. Sit back, relax, and prepare for darkness. April 15th, 190 Dear Sir, I am requested by the Council of the Association to return to you the draft of the paper of the Truth of Alchemy, which you have been good enough to offer to read at our forthcoming meeting, and to inform you that the Council do not see their way to including it in the programme. I am, yours faithfully, the Secretary. April 18th. Dear Sir, I am sorry to say that my engagements do not permit of my affording you an interview on the subject of your proposed paper, nor do our laws allow of you discussing the matter with a committee of our council, as you suggest. Please allow me to assure you that the fullest consideration was given to the draft which you submitted, and that it was not declined without having been referred to the judgement of a most competent authority. No personal question, it can be hardly be necessary for me to add, uh, can have had the slightest influence on the decision of the Council. Believe me. April 20th. The Secretary of the Association begs respectfully to inform Mr Carswell that it is impossible for him to communicate the name of any person or persons to whom the draft of Mr Carswell's paper uh, may have been submitted, and further desires to intima- intimate that he cannot undertake to reply to any further letters on this subject. And who is Mr. Carswell? inquired the secretary's wife. She had called at this office, and perhaps unwarrantably had picked up the last of these three letters, whilst which the typist had brought in. Why, my dear? Just at present, Mr Carswell is a very angry man, but I do not know much about him otherwise, except that he is a person of wealth, his address is Lufford Abbey, Warwickshire, and he's an alchemist, apparently, and wants to tell us all about it. Uh, And that's about all, except that I don't want to meet him for the next week or two. Now, if you're ready to leave this place, I am. What have you been doing to make him angry? asked Mrs. Secretary. The usual thing, my dear, the usual thing. He sent in a draft of a paper he wanted to read at the next meeting, and we referred it to Edward Dunning, almost the only man in England who knows about these things, and he said it was perfectly hopeless, so we declined it. "'So Carswell has been pelting me with these letters ever since. "'The last thing he wanted was the name of the man we referred his nonsense to. "'You saw my answer to that. "'I do hope, though, that he won't get to know that it was poor Mr Dunning.' "'Poor Mr Dunning? "'I don't know why you call him that. He's a very happy man, is Mr Dunning. "'Lots of hobbies and a comfortable home and all his time to himself.' Oh, well, I only meant I should be sorry for him if this man got hold of his name and, and came and bothered him. Oh, ah, yes, I dare say that would be poor Mr Dunning, then. The secretary and his wife were lunching out, and the friends to whose house they were bound were Warwickshire people. So, Mrs Secretary had already settled it in her mind that she would question him judiciously about Mr Carswell. But she was saved the trouble of leading up to the subject, for the hostess said to the host, before many minutes had passed, "'I saw the abbot of Lufford this morning,' the host whistled. "'Did you?' "'What in the world brings him up to town?' It was not unnatural that Mrs. Secretary should inquire whether this was a real abbot who was being spoken of. "'Oh, no, my dear, only a neighbour of ours is in the country who brought uh, Lufford Abbott a few years ago.' His real name is Carswell. Is he a friend of yours? asked Mr. Secretary, with a private wink to his wife. The question let loose a torrent of declamation. There was really nothing to be said for Mr. Carswell. Nobody knew what he did with himself. His servants were a horrible set of people. Uh, He had invented a new religion for himself and practised no one. Uh, could tell what appalling rights, he was very easily offended, and never forgave anybody. He had a dreadful face, and so the lady insisted, her husband somewhat demurring. He never did a kind action, and whatever influence he did exert was mischievous. "'Do the poor man justice, dear,' her husband interrupted. "'You forget the treat he gave the schoolchildren.' Forget it, indeed, but I'm glad you mentioned it, because it gives an idea of the man. Now, Florence, listen to this. The first winter he was at Lufford, this delightful neighbour of ours wrote to the clergyman of his parish. He's not ours, but we know him well, and offered to show the schoolchildren some magic lantern slides. He said he had some new kinds, which he thought uh, would interest them. Well, the clergyman was rather surprised, because Mr. Carswell had shown himself inclined to be unpleasant to the children, complaining of their trespassing or something of the sort. But of course he accepted, and the evening was fixed. And our friend went himself to see that very that everything was right. He said he had never been so thankful for anything as that his own children were all prevented from being there. They were at a children's party at our house, and as a matter of fact, because this Mr Carswell had evidently set out with the intention of frightening these poor village children out of their wits, and I do believe if it had been allowed to go on he would actually have done so. He began with some comparatively mild things. Red Riding Hood was one, and even then Mr Farrow said the wolf was so dreadful that several of the smaller children had to be taken out and he'd said Mr. Carswell began the story by producing a noise like a wolf howling in the distance, which was the most gruesome thing he had ever heard. All the slides he showed, Mr. Farah said, were most clever. They were absolutely realistic, and where he had got them, or how he had worked them, he could not imagine. Well, the show went on, and the stories kept on becoming a little more terrifying each time and the children were mesmerised into complete silence. At last he produced a series which represented a little boy passing through his own park, Lufford I mean, in the evening. Every child in the room could recognise the place from the pictures, and this poor boy was followed and at last pursued and overtaken, and either torn in pieces or somehow made away with by a horrible hopping creature in white. Which. You saw first dodging about amongst the trees, and gradually it appeared more and more plainly. Mr Farrar said it gave him one of the worst nightmares he ever remembered, and what it must have meant to the children doesn't bear thinking of. Of course this was too much, and he spoke very sharply indeed to Mr Carswell, and said it couldn't go on. All he said was, Oh, you think it's time to bring our little show to an end and send them home to their beds? Very well. And then, if you please, he switched to another slide, which showed a great mass of snakes, centipedes, and disgusting creatures with wings. And somehow or other, he made it seem as if they were climbing out of the picture and getting in amongst the audience. And this was accompanied by a sort of dry rustling noise, which sent the children nearly mad. And of course, they stampeded. A good many of them were rather hurt in getting out of the room, and I don't suppose one of them closed an eye that night. There was the most dreadful trouble in the village afterwards. Of course, the mothers threw a good part of the blame on poor Mr Farrow, and if they could have got her past the gates, I believe the fathers would have broken every window in the abbey. Well, now that's Mr Carswell, that's the abbot of Lufford, my dear, and you can imagine how we covered his society. Yes, I, I, I think he has all the possibilities of a distinguished criminal, has Carswell, said the host. I should be sorry for anybody who got into his bad books. Is he the man, or am I mixing him up with someone else, said the secretary, who for some minutes had been wearing the frown of a man who is trying to recollect something. Is he the man who brought out a history of witchcraft some time back? Ten years or more? That's the man. Do you remember the reviews of it? Certainly I do. And what's equally to point, I knew the author of the most incisive of the lot. So did you... You must remember John Harrington. He was a Johns in our time. Oh, yes, very well indeed, though I I don't think I saw or heard anything of him between the time I went down and the day I read the account of the inquest on him. Inquest? said one of the ladies. What happened to him? Why, what happened was that he fell out of a tree and broke his neck. But the puzzle was, what could have induced him to get up there? It was a mysterious business, I must say. Here was this man, not an athletic fellow was he, uh, with no eccentric twist about him that he was never noticed, walking home along the country road late in the evening. No tramps about. Well, no, well known and liked in the place, and he suddenly begins to run like mad, loses his hat and stick, and finally shins up a tree. Quite a difficult tree, growing in the hedgerow. A dead branch gives way, and he comes down with it and breaks his neck. And there he's found next morning with the most dreadful face of fear on him that that could be imagined. It was pretty evident, of course, that he had been chased by something, and people talked of savage dogs and beasts escaped after the menageries, but nothing to be made of that. That was in 89, and I believe his brother Henry whom I remember as well at Cambridge, but you probably don't, uh, has been trying to get on the track with an explanation ever since. He of course insists there was malice in it, but I don't know. It's difficult to see how I, it could have come in. After a time the talk reverted to the history of witchcraft. Did you ever look into it? asked the host. Yes, I did. Said the text said the secretary it was so far i went so far as to read it was it as bad as it was made out to be oh in point of style and form quite hopeless it deserved all the pulverizing it got but besides that it was an evil book the man believed every word of what he was saying and i'm very much mistaken if he hadn't tried the greater part of his uh, receipts. Well, I only remember Harrington's review of it and I must say if I'd been the author I would have quenched my literary ambition for good. I should never have held my, I would never have held my head up again. If it hasn't had the effect in the present case but some it's a half past 3. I must be off. On the way home the secretary's wife said I do hope that horrible man won't find out that Mr Dunning had anything to do with the rejection of his paper. I don't think there's much chance of that, said the Czech secretary. Dunning won't mention it himself, for these matters are confidential, and none of us will for the same reason. Carswell won't know his name, for Dunning hasn't published anything on the same subject yet. The only danger is that Carswell might find out if he was to ask the British Museum people who was in the habit of consulting alchemic scripts. It can't very well... I can't very well tell them not to mention Dunning, can I? It would set them talking at once. Let's hope it won't occur. However, Mr Carswell was an astute man. This much is in the way of a prologue. On an evening rather later in the same week, Mr Edward Dunning was returning from the British Museum, where he had been engaged in research, to the comfortable house in a suburb where he lived alone, tended by two excellent women who had been with him a long time. There is nothing to be added by the way of description of him to what he had already heard. Let us follow him as he takes his sober course homewards. A train took him to within a mile or two of his house, an electric tram a stage further. The line ended at a point 300 yards from his front door. He had enough of reading when he got into the car, and indeed the light was not so much as to allow him to do more than study the advertisements on the panes of glass that faced him as he sat As he was not unnatural, the advertisements in this particular line of cars were objects of his frequent contemplation, and, with the possible exception of the brilliant and convincing dialogue between Mr Lamplough and the eminent KC on the subject of pyretic Selene, none of them afforded much scope to his imagination. I am wrong. There was one at the corner of the car farthest from him which did not seem familiar. It was in blue letters on a yellow ground, and all that he could read of it was a name, John Harrington, and something like a date. It could be of no interest to him to know more, but for all that, as the car emptied, he was just curious enough to move along the seat until he could read it well. He felt, to a slight extent, repaid for his trouble. The advertisement was not of the usual type. It ran thus. In memory of John Harrington, FSA of the Laurels, Ashbrook. Died September 18th, 1889. Three months were allowed. The car stopped. Mr Dunning contemplating the blue letters on the yellow ground had to be stimulated stimulated to rise by a word from the conductor. I beg your pardon, he said. I was looking at that advertisement. It's a very odd one, isn't it? The conductor read it slowly well my word he said i never see that one before well that is a cure ain't it Someone someone bit up there someone bit up to their jokes here i should think he got out a duster and applied it not without saliva to the pane and then to the outside nope he said returning that ain't no transfer seems to me as if it wasn't regular in them glass what i mean in substance as you may say don't you think so sir mr dunning examined it and rubbed it with his glove and agreed who looks after these advertisements and gives leave for them to be put up i wish you would inquire i will just take a note of the words at this moment there came a call from the driver Look alive, george time's up all right all right there's something else what's up at this end You come and have a look at this, here, glass. What's going with the glass? Said the driver, approaching. Well, and who's Arrington? What is it all about? I was just asking who was responsible for putting the advertisements up in your cars and saying it would be as well to make some inquiry about this one. Well, sir, that's all done at the company's office. That is work is. Uh, It's our Mr. Timms, I believe. Looks into that. When we put up tonight, I'll I'll leave word and perhaps I'll be able to tell you tomorrow if you happen to come this way." And this was all that passed that evening. Mr Dunning just... Mr Dunning did just go to the trouble of looking up Ashbrook and found that it was in Warwickshire. Next day he went to town again. And the car, it was the same car, was too full in the morning to allow of his getting a word to the conductor. He could only be sure that the curious advertisement had been made away with. The close of the day brought a further element of mystery into the transaction. He had missed the tram, or else preferred walking home, but at a rather late hour, while he was at work in his study, one of the maids came to say that two men from the tramways were very anxious to speak to him. This was a reminder of the advertisement which he had, he says, nearly forgotten he had the men in uh, they were the conductor and the driver of the car and when the matter of the refreshment had been attended to asked what mr Timms had had to say about the advertisement well sir that's what we took the liberty to step around about said the conductor mr Timms, he, he gave william here the rough side of his tongue about that According to him, there weren't no advertisement of that description sent in, nor ordered, nor paid for, nor put up, nothing. Let alone not being there, as we was playing the fool taking up his time. Well, I says, if that's the case, all I ask of you, Mr Timms, I says, is to take and look for, at it for yourself, I says. Of course, if it ain't there, I says, you may take and call me what you like, right? Right, he says, I will and we went off. Now, I leave it to you, sir, if that ad, as we were, as we term them, with Arrington on, on it, weren't as plain as you'd ever f- think, blue letters on yellow glass, and as I says at the time, and you borne out me, regular in the glass, because, if you remember, you recollect of me swabbing it with my duster. To be sure, I do, and quite clearly. Well, you may say, well, I don't think. Mr Timms, he gets in the car with a light, No, he tell William uh, to old old the lighthouse. Yeah, now, now, he says, where's your precious ad? Uh, And and we've heard so much about. Here it is, I says, Mr. Timms. And I laid my hand on it. The conductor paused. Well, said Mr. Dunning. It was gone, I suppose. Broken? Broke? Not it. They weren't if you'll believe me, no more trace of them letters. Blue letters they was, on that piece of glass. Then, well, if it's no good me talking, I never seen such a thing. I leave it to William here, but there, as I says, where's the benefit in me going on about it? And, what did Mr Timms say? Why, he did what I gave him leave to called us pretty much anything he liked, and I don't know as I blame him so much neither, but what we thought William and me did was, we seen you take down a bit of a note about that, well, that lettering. Oh, I certainly did. Uh, I have it now. Uh, Do you wish me to speak to Mr Timms myself and and show it to him? Was that what you came in about? There, didn't I saw you as much, said William with a gent if you can get on the track with one that's my word now perhaps george you'll allow us i ain't took you very far wrong tonight very well william very well Uh, no need for you to go on as if you'd had the frogs march me here i came quite didn't i all the same for that we ain't out to take up your time this way sir but if it's so apprehend you could find time to step round to the company's office in the morning and tell Mr. Timms what you'd seen for yourself, we should lay under a very high obligation to you for the trouble. You see, it ain't mean called, well, one thing or another as we mind, but if you got it into their head at the office as we seen things that as weren't there, why, one thing leads to another and where we should be twirling up punts, uh, well, you can understand what I mean. Amid further elucidations of the proposition, George, conducted William, conducted by William, left the room. The incredulity of Mr. Timms, who had a nodding acquaintance with Mr. Dunning, was greatly modified uh, on the following day by what the latter could tell and show him, and any bad mark that might have been attached to the names of William and George was not suffered to remain on the company's books, but explanation there was none. Mr. Dunning's interest in the matter was kept alive by an incident on the following afternoon. He was walking from his club to the train, and he noticed some ahead of him, a man, with a handful of leaflets such as were distributed to passers-by by by agents of enterprising firms. The agent had not chosen a very crowded street for his operations. In fact, Mr. Dunning did not see him get rid of a single leaflet, he himself reached the spot. One was thrust into his hand as he passed. The hand that gave it touched his, and he experienced a sort of little shock as he did so. It seemed unnaturally rough and hot. He looked in the passing at the giver, but the impression he got was so unclear that, however much he tried to reckon it up subsequently, nothing would come he was walking quickly and as he went on a glance went on and glanced at the paper it was blue the name harrington in large capital letters caught his eye he stopped startled and felt for his glasses the next infl- instant the leaflet was twitched out of his hand by a man who hurried past and it was irrecover- irrecoverably gone he ran back a few paces but where was the passerby where was the distributor it was in a somewhat pensive frame of mind that mr dunning passed on the following day into the select into the select manuscript room of the british museum and filled up tickets for harley 3586 and some other volumes after a few minutes they were brought to him and he was settling the one he wanted to first look upon the desk when he thought he heard his own name whispered behind him he turned around hastily and in doing so brushed his portfolio of loose papers onto the floor. He saw no one he recognised except one of the staff in charge of the room, who nodded to him and proceeded to pick up his papers. He thought he had had them all and was turning to begin work, when a stout gentleman at the table behind him, who was just rising to leave, and had collected his own belongings, touched him on the shoulder, saying, "'May I give you this? I think it should be yours.' and handed him a missing choir it is mine thank you said mr dunning in another moment the man had left the room on finishing his work for the afternoon mr dunning had some conversation with the assistant in charge and took occasion to ask who the stout gentleman was oh he, he, he's a man named um, carswell said the assistant He was asking me a week ago who were the great authorities on alchemy, and of course I told him you were the only one in the country. I'll see if I can't catch him. He'd like to meet you, I'm sure. For heaven's sake, don't dream of it, said Mr Dunning. I'm particularly anxious to avoid him. Oh, very well, said the assistant. He doesn't come here often. I dare say you won't meet him more than once on the way home that day mr dunning confessed to himself that he did not look forward to his usual cheerfulness to the solitary evening it seemed to him that something ill-defined and implacable had stepped in between him and his fellow men had taken him in charge as it were he wanted to sit close up to his neighbors in the train and in the tram but as luck would have it both train and the car were markedly empty the conductor, George, was thoughtful, and appeared to be absorbed in calculations as to the number of passengers. On arriving at his house, he found Dr. Watson, his medical man, on his doorstep. I've had to upset your household arrangements, I'm sorry to say, Dunning, both your servants hors de combat. In fact, I've had to send them to the nursing home. Good heavens! Uh, what's what's the matter? It's something like domain poisoning, I should think. You've not suffered yourself, I see, or you wouldn't be walking about. I think they'll pull through the night. Dear, dear, have you any idea what brought it on? Well, they tell me they brought some shellfish from a hawker at their dinner time. It's odd. I've made inquiries, but I can't find any hawker has been to other houses in the street. Couldn't send word to you they wouldn't be back for a bit yet. You, come and dine with me tonight, anyhow, and we can make arrangements for going on. Eight o'clock? and Don't be too anxious. The solitary evening was thus obviated, at the expense of some distress and inconvenience. It is true, Mr Dunning spent the time pleasantly enough with the doctor, a rather recent settler. Uh, and returned to his lonely home at about eleven-thirty. The night he passed is not one which he looks back on with any satisfaction. He was in bed, and the light was out. He was wondering if the charwoman would come early enough to get him hot water next morning, when he heard the unmistakable sound of his study door opening. No step followed it on the passage floor, but the sound must mean mischief for he knew that he had shut the door that evening after putting his papers away in his desk. It was rather shame that courage that induced him to slip out into the passage and lean over the banister in his nightgown listening. No light was visible. No further sound came. Only a gust of warm, or even hot air, played for an instant round his shins. He went back and decided to lock himself in his room. There was more unpleasantness, however. Either an economically suburban company had decided that their light would not be required in the small hours and had stopped working, or else something was wrong with the meter. The effect was in any case that the electric light was off. The obvious course was to find a match, and also to consult his watch. He might as well know how many hours of discomfort awaited him, so he put his hand into the well-known nook under his pillow, only it did not get so far. What he touched was, according to his account, a mouth, with teeth, and with hair about it. And he declares, not the mouth of a human being. I do not think it is any use to guess what he said or did. But he was in a spare room with the door locked and his ear to it before he was clearly conscious again. And there he spent the rest of a most miserable night looking every moment for some fumbling, someone fumbling at the door, but nothing came. The venturing back to his own room in the morning was attended with many listenings and quiverings. The door stood open, fortunately, and the blinds were up. The servants had been out of the house before the hour of the drawing of them down. There was, to be short, no trace of an inhabitant. The watch, too was in its usual place. Nothing was disturbed. Only the wardrobe door had swung open, in accordance with its confirmed habit. A ring at the back door now announced the charwoman, who had been ordered the night before, and nerved Mr Dunning. After letting her in to continue his search in the other part of the house, it was equally fruitless. The day thus begun went on to dismally enough he dared not go to the museum in spite of what the assistant had said carswell might turn up there and dunning felt he could not cope with a probably hostile stranger his own house was odious he hated sponging on the doctor he spent some little time in a call at the nursing home where he was slightly cheered by a good report of his housekeeper and maid towards lunchtime he betook himself to his club again experienced a gleam of satisfaction at seeing the secretary of the association at luncheon dunning told his friend the more material of his woes but could not bring himself to speak of those that waited most heavily upon his spirits my dear man said the secretary what an upset look here we're alone at home absolutely you must put up with this yes yes no excuse send your things in the afternoon Dunning was unable to stand out he was in truth becoming acutely anxious as the hours went on as to what that night might have been waiting as to what that night might have been waiting for him he was almost happy as he hurried home to pack up his friends when they had time to take stock of him were rather shocked at his lawn appearance and did their best to keep him up to the mark not altogether without success but when the two men were smoking alone later, Dunning became dull again. Suddenly he said, Gaten, I believe the alchemist man knows it was I who got his paper rejected. Gaten whistled. What makes you think that? he said. Um, Dunning told of his conversation with the museum assistant, and Gaten could only agree that the guess seemed likely to be correct. Not that I care much, Dunning went on, only it might be a nuisance if we were to meet. He's a bad-tempered party, I imagine. Conversation dropped again, and Gayton became more and more strongly impressed with the desolateness that came over Dunning's face and bearing. And finally, though with considerable effort, he asked him to point-blank whether something serious was not bothering him. Dunning gave an explanation of relief. "'I was perishing to get it off my mind,' he said. "'Do you know anything about a man named John Harrington?' Gayton was thoroughly startled at the moment, and could only ask why. Then the complete story of Dunning's experiences came out. What had happened in the tram car, in his own house, and in the street, the troubling of the spirit that had crept over him and still held him— And he had ended with the question he had begun with. Gayton was at a loss as to how to answer him. To tell the story of Harrington's end would perhaps be right, only Dunning was in a nervous state and the story was a grim one, and could not help asking himself whether there were not a connecting link between these two cases in the person of Carswell. It was a difficult concession for a scientific man, but it could be eased by the phrase hypnotic suggestion. In the end, he decided that his answer tonight should be guarded. He would talk the situation over with his wife. So, he said that he had known Harrington at Cambridge, and believed he had died suddenly in 1889, adding a few details about the man and his published work. He did not talk over the matter with Mrs Gayton, and as he had anticipated, she left at once to the conclusion which had been hovering before him. It was she who reminded him of the surviving brother, Henry Harrington, and she also who suggested that he might be got hold of by the means of their hosts of the day before. He might be a hopeless crank, objected, crank, objected Gayton. that could be ascertained from the Bennets who knew him. Mrs. Gayton retorted, and she undertook the business to see the Bennets the very next day. It is not necessary to tell him in further detail. It is not necessary to tell in further details the steps by which Henry Harrington and Dunning were brought together. The next scene that does require to be narrated in a conversation that took place between the two. Dunning had told Harrington of the strange ways in which the dead man's name had been brought before him, and had said something besides of his own subsequent experiences. Then, He had asked Harrington, then he had asked if Harrington was disposed, in return to recall any of the circumstances connected with his brother's death. Harrington's surprise at what he had heard can be imagined, but his reply was readily given. John, he said, was in a very odd state, undeniably from time to time, enduring some weeks before, though not immediately before, the catastrophe. There were several things. The principal notion he had was that he thought he was being followed. No doubt he was an impressionable man, but he never had had such fancies on this before. I cannot get it out of my mind that there was ill-will at work, and what you tell me about yourself reminds me very much of my brother. Can you think of any possible connecting link? There is, there is just one that has taken shape vaguely in my mind. I've been told that your brother reviewed a book very severely not long before he died, and just lately I've happened to cross the path of the man who wrote that book in a way he would resent. Don't tell me the man's name was called Carswell. Why not? That is exactly his name. Henry Harrington leant back. That is final to my mind. Now I must explain further. From something he said, I feel sure that my brother John was beginning to believe, very much against his will, that Carswell was at the bottom of the trouble. I want to tell you what seems to me to have a bearing on the situation. My brother was a great musician, and used to run up to concerts in town. Uh, He came back three months before he died from one of these, and gave me his programme to look at. An analytical programme he always kept with him. I nearly missed this one, he said. I suppose I must have dropped it. Anyhow, I was looking for it under my seat and in my pockets, and, and so on, and... My neighbour offered me his, he said, "Might he give it to me? He had no further use for it, and he went away just afterwards. I don't know who he was, a stout, clean-shaven man. I should have been very sorry to miss it, of course. I could have brought another, but this cost me nothing. At another time at another time, he told me that he had been very uncomfortable both on the way to his hotel and during the night i pieced together things now in thinking it over. Then, not very long after, he was going over these programs, putting them in order to have them bound up, and in this particular one, which, by the way, I hardly glanced at, he found quite near the beginning of a strip of paper, with some very odd writing on it in red and black, most carefully done. It looked to me more like runic letters than anything else. And I'm going to take a quick five minute break now, because we've been going on for a while now, I feel, and when we see this creepy writing, is a perfect time to pause. I shall see you again in five. We have seen some runic letters turn up in black and red. What are these letters, and what are these words, and what do they mean? Let us begin the tale, or restart the tale of the casting of the runes. Why, he said, this must belong to my fat neighbour. It looks as if it might be worth returning to him. It may be a copy of something. Evidently someone has taken trouble over it. How can I find his address? We talked it over for a little while and agreed that it was worth wasn't worth advertising about, and that my brother had better look out for the man at the next concert, to which he was going very soon. The paper was lying on the book and we were both by the fire. It was a cold, windy summer evening. I suppose the door blew open, though I didn't notice it. At any rate August a warm gust it was uh, came quite suddenly between us took the paper and blew it straight into the fire it was light thin paper and flared and went up the chimney in a single ash well i said you can't give it back now he said nothing for a minute rather than than rather crossly no i can't but why would why should you keep on saying i so we don't know I remarked that i didn't say it more than once not more than four times you mean was all he said i remember all that very clearly without any good reason and now to come to the point i don't know if you looked at the book carswell of carswell's which my unfortunate brother reviewed it's not likely that you should but i did both before his death And after it. The first time we made game of it together. It was written in no style at all, split infinitives and every sort of thing that makes an Oxford Gorge rise. Then, there was nothing that the man didn't swallow. Mixing up classical myths and stories of the golden legend with reports of savage customs of today. All very proper, no doubt. If you know how to use them. But he didn't. He seemed to put the golden legend and the Golden bow exactly on a par, and to believe both. A pitiable exib- exhibition, in short. Well, after the misfortune, I looked over the book again. It was no better than before, but the impression which it left this time on my mind was different. I suspected, as I told you, uh, that Carswell had borne ill will to my brother. Even that he was in some way responsible for what had happened, and now his book seemed to me to be a very sinister performance indeed. One chapter in particular struck me, in which he spoke of casting the runes on people, either for the purpose of gaining their affection or of getting them out of the way, and perhaps more especially the latter. He spoke of all this in a way that really seemed to me to imply actual knowledge. I've not time to go into details, but the upshot is that I am pretty sure from information received from the civil man at the concert was Carswell. I suspect, nay I more than suspect, that the paper was of importance, and I do believe that if my brother had been able to give it back, he might have been alive now. Therefore, It occurs to me to ask you whether you have anything to put beside what I have told you. By way of answer, Dunning had the episode in the manuscript room at the British Museum to relate. Then, he did actually hand some papers to you? Have you examined them? No, because we must. If you'll allow it, look at them at once and very carefully. They went to the still-empty house. Empty, for the two servants were not able to return to work. Dunning's portfolio of papers was gathering dust on the writing table. In it were the queries of small-sized scribbling paper which he had used for his transcripts, and from one of these as he took it up, there slipped and fluttered about into the room with uncanny quickness, a strip of thin, light paper. The window was open, but Harrington slammed it too, just in time to intercept the paper, which he caught. I thought so, he said. It might be the identical thing that was given to my brother. You'll have to look out, Dunning, and this may mean something quite serious for you. A long consultation took place. The paper was narrowly examined. As Harrington had said, the characters on it were more like runes than anything else but not decipherable by either man, and both hesitated to copy them, for fear, as they confessed, of perpetuating whatever evil purpose they might conceal. So it has remained impossible, if I may anticipate a little bit, to ascertain what was conveyed in this curious message of commission. Both Dunning and Harrington are firmly convinced that It had the effect of bringing its possessors into very undesirable company. That it must be returned to the source whence it came, they were agreed. And further, that the only safe and certain way was that of personal service. And here contrivance would be necessary, for Dunning was known by sight to Carswell. He must, for one thing, alter his appearance by shaving his beard. But that might not, might not the blow fall first. Harrington thought they could come, but then might not the blow fall first. Harrington thought they could come time it. He knew the date of the concert at which the black spot had been put on his brother. It was June 18th. The death had followed on September 18th. Dunning reminded him that three months had been mentioned on the manuscript on the car window. Perhaps, he added, with a cheerless laugh, (laughs) mine may be a bill at three months too. I believe I can fix it by my diary. Yes, April 23rd was the day at the museum. That brings us to July 23rd. Now you know... It becomes extremely important to me to know anything you will tell me about the progress of your brother's trouble, if it is possible for you to speak of it. Of course, of course. Well, the sense of being watched whenever he was alone was the most distressing thing to him. After a time I took to sleeping in his room, and he was the better for that still. He talked of a great deal in his he talked a great deal in his sleep. What about eh, is it wise to dwell on that? At least before things are straightened out. I think not, but I can tell you this. Two things came for him by post during those weeks. One was a woodcut of Berwick's roughly torn out of the page, one which shows a moonlit road and a man walking along it, followed by an awful demon creature. Under it were written the lines out of the ancient mariner, which I suppose the cut illustrates about one who having once looked around, walks on, and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. The other was a calendar, such as a tradesman often sends. My brother paid no attention to this, but I looked at it after his death, and found that everything after September the 18th had been torn out. You may be surprised at his having gone out alone that evening. Uh, he was killed, but the fact is that during the last ten days or so of his life, he had been quite free from his sense of being followed or watched. The end of the consultation was this: Harrington knew a neighbour of Carswell's, thought he was a, thought he saw a way of keeping a watch on his movements. It would be Dunning's part to be in readiness to try to cross Carswell's path at any moment to keep the paper safe and in place of ready access. They parted. The next weeks were no doubt a severe strain upon Dunning's nerves, the intangible barrier which had seemed to rise about him on the day when he received the paper gradually developed into a brooding blackness that cut him off from the means of escape to which one might have brought him, which he thought might have resort. No one was at hand who was likely to suggest them to him, and he seemed robbed of all initiative. He waited with inexpressible anxiety as May, June and early July passed on for a mandate from Harrington. But all this time, Carswell remained immovable at Lufford. At last, in less than a week before the date he had come to look upon at the end of his earthly activities, came a telegram. Lees Victoria by boat train, Thursday night. Do not miss. I come to you tonight, Harrington. He arrived accordingly, and they concocted plans. The train left Victoria at nine, and its last stop before Dover was Croydon West. Harrington would mark down Carswell at Victoria and look out for Dunning at Croydon, calling to him if need were by a name agreed upon. Dunning, disguised as far as might be, was to have no label or initials on any hand luggage, and must at all costs have the paper with him. Dunning's suspense as he waited on the Croydon platform I need not attempt to describe his sense of danger during the last few days had only been sharpened by the fact that the cloud about him had perceptibly been lighter but relief was an ominous symptom and if carswell eluded him now hope was gone and there were so many chances of that the rumor of the journey might be itself a device the 20 minutes in which he placed himself which he paced the platform and persecuted every porter with inquiries as to the boat train were as bitter as any he had spent. Still, the train came, and Harrington was at the window. It was important, of course, that there should be no recognition, so Dunning got in at a further end of the corridor carriage, and only gradually made his way to the compartment where Harrington and Carswell were. He was pleased, on the whole, to see that the train was far from full. Carswell was on alert, but gave no sign of recognition. Dunning took the seat not immediately facing him, and attempted vainly at first, then with increasing command of his faculties to reckon the possibilities of making the desired transfer. Opposite to Carswell, and next to Dunning, was a heap of Carswell's coats on the seat. It would be of no use to slip the paper in these, He he would not be safe, or would not feel so unless in some way it could be proffered by him and accepted by the other. There was a op- handbag, open, with papers in it. Could he manage to conceal this, so that perhaps Carswell might leave the carriage without it, and then find and give it to him? And this was the plan that suggested itself. And he could only have counselled with Harrington, but that could not be. The minutes went on. More than once Carswell rose and went out into the corridor. The second time Dunning was on the point of attempting to make the bag fall off the seat, but he caught Harrington's eye and read it as a warning. Carswell, from the corridor, was watching, probably to see if the two men recognised each other. He returned, but was evidently restless. And when he rose a third time, hope dawned. For something did slip off his seat and fall with a handy, with hardly a sound to the floor. Carswell went out once more and passed out of range of the corridor window. Dunning picked up what had fallen and saw that it was the key was in his hands, in the form of one of the cook's ticket cases, with tickets in it. These cases have a pocket in the cover, and within very few seconds, the paper of which we had heard was in the pocket of this one. To make the operation more secure, Harrington stood in the doorway of the compartment and fiddled with the blind. It was done, and done at the right time, for the train was now slowing down towards Dover. In a moment more, Carswell re-entered the compartment, and as he did so, Dunning, Managing, he knew not how to suppress the tremble in his voice, handed him the ticket case, saying, May I give you this, sir? I I believe it is yours. After a brief glance at the ticket inside, Carswell uttered the hoped-for response. Yes, it is. Much obliged to you, sir. And he placed it in his breast pocket. Even in the few moments that remained, moments of tense anxiety, for they knew not what a premature finding of the paper might lead, both men noticed that the carriage seemed to darken about them and to grow warmer. That Carswell was fidgety and depressed, that he drew the heap of loose coats near to him and cast it back as if repelled, as if, as if it repelled him, and then. He sat upright and glanced anxiously at both. They were sickening anxiety, busied themselves with collecting their belongings, but they both thought that Carswell was on the point of speaking when the train stopped at Dover Town. It was natural that in the short space between town and pier they should both go into the corridor. At the pier they got out, But so empty was the train that they were forced to linger on the platform until Carswell should have passed ahead of them with his porter on the way to the boat. Only then was it safe for them to exchange a pressure of the hand and a word of concentrated congratulation. The effect upon Dunning was to make him almost faint. Harrington made him lean up against the wall, while he himself went forward a few yards within sight of the gangway to the boat, at which Carswell had now arrived. The man at the head of it examined his ticket, and laden with coat, he passed down to the boat. Suddenly the official called after him. You, sir, beg pardon? Did the other gentleman show his ticket? What the devil do you mean by the other gentleman? Carswell's snarling voice called back from the deck. The man bent over and looked at him. The devil? well i don't know i'm sure harrington heard him say to himself and then aloud my mistake sir must have been your rugs ask your pardon and then to the subordinate near him had he got a dog with him or what funny thing i could have sworn he wasn't alone well wherever it was i'll have to see it see to it aboard she's off now another week and she'll be getting the holiday customers In five minutes more, there was nothing but the lessening lights of the boat, the long line of the Dover lamps, the night breeze and the moon. Long and long the two sat in their room at the Lord Warden. In spite of the removal of their greatest anxiety, they were oppressed with a doubt. Not of the lightest had they been justified in sending a man to his death, as they believed they had ought they not to warn him at least no said harrington if he is the murderer i think him we have done no more than is just still if you think it better but how and where can you warn him he was booked to abbeville only said dunning i saw that if i wired to the hotels there in jones guide examine your ticket case dunning i should feel happier this is the 21st he will have a day but i'm afraid he has gone into the dark so telegrams were left at the hotel office it is not clear whether these reached their destinations or whether if they did they were understood all that is known is that on the afternoon of the 23rd an english traveler examining the front of saint Wolfram's church of Aberville, then under extensive repair, was struck on the head and instantly killed by a stone falling from the scaffold erected round the north-western tower. There being, as was clearly proved, no workman on the scaffolding at that moment, and the traveller's papers identified him as Mr Carswell. Only one detail shall be added. At Carswell's assail, a set of Berwick sold with all faults, was acquired by Harrington. The page with the woodcut of the traveller and the demon was, as he was expected, mutilated. After all a judicious interval, Harrington repeated to Dunning something of what he had heard his brother say in his sleep. But it was not long before Dunning stopped him. And that, my friends, is why you don't mess with powers beyond your control that is why you don't delve into the secrets of the runes and into the darkness of black magic for you make a deal with the devil and are unable to complete the deal, it will come back to you and you shall pay your dues I do wish you all a happy Wen and may your features and your masks protect you from those demons that seek you out tonight. Thank you very much for listening. Whether it is in the stream or whether you have watched it on YouTube or whether you have listened to it in your ears and absorbed it silently listening it through the ether of the internet and the podcast i thank you the drink has run dry and it's time for me to say good night my friends and sweet dreams